Many voters are concerned that the democratic process could be at risk. Democracy is in decline across large parts of the world's surface. How worried should we be about democracy? That's a question at the root of much of our discussion on this podcast. So we thought it was time to tackle it head on. There's been an ongoing campaign against independent civil society organizations in Hungary. Those in power seek to undermine every institution or norm that gives democracy meaning. Well-functioning democracies are about more than just elections or referenda. We need a free press and the rule of law, human rights, people's involvement in politics beyond voting every few years. But what we see now is on the one hand, amongst the public, the kind of rise of polarisation, pessimism, disillusionment. On the other, we see populism, which has been caricatured as a kind of illiberal democracy, people who get elected but don't have a great deal of respect for all the other things that we might associate with a fully democratic society. Unless we find a way to recover a reason for democracy, there is no fight for democracy to be had. You're listening to Polarised, the podcast from the RSA that's all about trying to understand the big divides in our society and our culture and the forces driving us further apart. It's presented by Matthew Taylor and by me, Ian Leslie. Coming up, we'll be talking to Nahir Tazandi and Eliane Glazer about how doomed or not doomed we might be. But before we get started, this is a segment where Matthew and I lay our cards on the table and set out what we know or think we know about this episode's topic. We call it full disclosure. Matthew, what's your starting point? The thing I've been thinking about, Ian, is is whether we can get a conversation going which connects two things. On the one hand, kind of philosophical or psychoanalytic descriptions of how hard it is to live our lives, that it's just not easy to make your life meaningful uh, in the modern world in particular. And on the other hand, all the conversations that you and I have about kind of what's going wrong with the system, the democratic uh, system. We had Will Davis on last time, and I think he was starting to approach some of these questions about the challenges of making our lives meaningful. He was talking about how the difference between war and peace has broken down, the difference between reason and emotion has broken down. Francis Fukuyama's most recent book, Identity, also explores the the, the challenge of how it is that we can pursue and have a, a sense of identity in the modern world. Uh, so I wrote a blog uh, recently uh, asking whether politics could ever be about instilling w- us in us wisdom rather than just increasing our anxiety. Uh, and I guess this is related to two things. One is the sense that at heart populism is about the denial of complexity. And so somehow politicians have to talk about complexity. And if you talk about complexity, part of the complexity is the complexity of how we live our lives. And, and on the other hand, that kind of sense that may, we've, we've always assumed in the past that the politicians who are successful are the ones who give us hope you know, like Obama, uh, like Clinton, like Blair. Maybe we need politicians who don't give us hope, but they have a capacity to engage us with realism. They have a a capacity to engage us with the fact that we have to make difficult trade-offs, that life is there. I'm interested that Ben Rhodes' book about, he was um, Barack Obama's speechwriter, foreign affairs speechwriter. The book starts full of hope and idealism. At the end, he says that Obama starts to become very interested in books like Yona Ari's book uh, about 
how difficult it is actually for human beings to make any difference to anything. It's almost as if he kind of goes, has to comfort himself at the end by saying, actually, you know, we don't have that much agency. So it was a kind of speculation about whether or not we could ever have a politics which was about wisdom uh, rather than about politics that in the end offered us things which, which are impossible. Just a final point. I also wanted to say in that blog that in the end, all the populists are doing what the mainstream politicians did, but they're doing it on steroids because the mainstream politicians also used to say, you know, elect me and everything will be fine. And the only reason everything is difficult in your life is because of these bastards who are running the country. So uh, I feel that whatever happens with populism, we've got to somehow have a politics that isn't about saying vote for me, everything's going to be fine. Okay. Um that's very deep. Uh, I, I'm going to give you a very uh, a sort of superficial alternative answer to the question of, of uh, you know, what democracy is for and so on. I, I think for most people, is two very basic things. One is we want stuff to to run. We want we don't want there to be a lot of crime. We want to be able to get it around yeah. our daily life with some, you know, some facility and without fear, without being threatened. And the second thing is we, we want to be able to chuck the bastards out. Right, if uh, if they're not doing that properly. Other than that, I actually don't think people want or need wisdom from, from politicians. Uh, I don't think most people look to politics for meaning in their life. I know some people do, but I, but, but most people don't. They, they're basically outsourcing the, the, the running of that of, of society in order that they can focus on uh, creating meaning uh, in their own in their own lives and so, in, in their family and friends. So w- w- we've got two great guests. So we we'll have to move on in a second. But I, I, the reason I disagree with that is because I think that the that in our needs and expectations in human beings is something which is unfulfillable. So it seems to me that unless democracy has a way of explaining to us that things like our identity demands, our desire on the one hand to have an identity which says we're the same as everybody else, we have the same rights as everybody else, but on the other hand, actually my group or my country is in some way super... Unless we have a way of dealing with that, it becomes unmanageable, and that's part of where we are today. So I think whether we like it or not, democracy has to find a way of helping us to understand that we can't have everything we want, or else we end up with people who are very good at promising us everything we want, and that's partly where we are now. Anyway... Let's return to that next time. Yeah, yeah indeed. With, with those, those questions in mind, we're, we're joined by two guests who can uh, hopefully help us feel uh, a little less gloomy about the state of democracy and, and optimistic about, about uh, where we're going. Nahir Dasandi is a political scientist at the University of Birmingham and author of a new book called Is Democracy Failing? Hello, Nehir. Hello. And we're also joined by Eliane Glazer, writer and lecturer, and author of Antipolitics on the Demonization of Ideology, Authority and the State. Hello, Eliane. Hello. Nehir, I'm going to start with you. Let's, let's start with the definition of democracy, right? Let's, what is democracy? And if, we, if we're looking at whether or not it's failing... What should we be paying attention to? Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's obviously uh, a contested issue in terms of how we define democracy. But I would say I would say it involves four basic components, which which Matthew's already touched on. So uh, the first is competition for power. So you, governments are chosen and replaced through free and fair elections. 
The second would be citizen participation in, in civic and political life. So that means it means voting, but it also means more than that, being informed and engaged with politics, being able to campaign, being able to set up organizations that meet their interests and their, their needs in, in society. The third would be the kind of basic protection of people's fundamental rights. So so human rights and individual rights are, are protected within that society. And the fourth would be uh, the rule of law. So leaders, governments rule according to law. They don't make arbitrary decisions. And people are equal before the law and, and treated equally in front of the law. OK, so so when we're talking about democracy being under threat, what, what are we talking about? Are, 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 do people mean different things by that. So some people say, oh, liberal democracy is under threat, but but democracy itself is safe or there are different forms of democracy we should be pursuing. What can you just kind of help us frame that? Yeah, discussion? and I think that's um that's a really important point because the argument that democracy is under threat, if we were to take just elections, currently we have more elected leaders than we've ever seen in, in history. So if we were to take just one part, there's nothing to suggest that democracy is failing. But if we're then to look at some of the other parts of democracy, so issues such as the rule of law, issues such as uh, individual rights and, and civil society, I think that's where we start to see some of the problems. So the argument I would make is that what we're seeing is one part of democracy, which is popular support. So leaders that have come to power through winning elections being used to undermine other parts of the democratic system. So individual rights, civil society participation, and even in some cases, the rule of law. So I think uh, that's a tension. And, and some would say, you know, that's not a failure of democracy. That's a failure of liberal democracy, if you, as, as you've pointed out, that, you know, we're conflating two things. It's a very fine line. So the, the issue is once you start to lose those other parts of a democratic system, gradually even the elections won't mean, make sense. So if, if people are restricted from accessing information because there are severe kind of restrictions on the media, at what point do elections stop being free and fair once those things happen? I mean, I'm already put in mind of this, uh, of a distinction that Yasha Monk made in his recent book, which is between... Uh, what he calls illiberal democracy, which is, I think, in here what you're describing. So you have elections, but you don't have the, the other kind of aspects of this. But of course, Yasha Monk says that that is a response in part to what he describes as undemocratic liberalism, which might take us to some Allianz critiques, I guess, of, of democracy, which is that the previous democracy, the Blair-Clinton model of democracy, was one in which decisions were made by elites. Um, and it wasn't really terribly democratic because whoever was in power, you more, more or less kind of got the same kind of stuff. Um, I'm interested in that, but I think one of the questions about, I just want to ask you one question about rights. So there's a big debate about rights in political philosophy, negative rights and positive rights. Now, your notion of rights, it seems to me, is primarily that negative right. So the right not to be interfered with unreasonably by the state or by other people. Many people would say, yeah, but this is a society where if you look at positive rights, your right to fully participate, well, we've been denying those people rights for a very long time. You know, young people don't have the right to own their own house or people don't have the right to have a decent job. Or people, It depends on your account of rights whether or not you think liberal democracy was ever delivering it, doesn't it? Uh, no, I think that's exactly right. And while when I speak about human rights and individual rights, I have, you're right, I, I am focusing on the, those negative rights. That's not to say that the positive rights issues such as economic security, access to housing, those things aren't important. And I think that's exactly right, that those are the sorts of things that people have in the past. You know, we haven't done enough within democratic societies to address some of those issues. So I'd completely agree that's where the backlash is, is in part at least coming from. By focusing on negative rights, that's not to undermine the importance of positive rights, such as economic rights, such as access to health, I think is a, a really important issue. Yeah. So well, I guess no, it goes to the public's attitude. I mean, you said to the public, 
Would you prefer a society where your kids can all afford a home and where you've got economic security, but occasionally people get banged up in prison without proper due process? I mean, I don't know where people would lie on that issue. <laughs> just, just one more kind of um, framing question here, because we, we inevitably we'll, we'll kind of focus on the UK and the US and Trump and Brexit when we're thinking about this. But what's the kind of global situation? Just looking at it in, the, in terms of the big picture as well. So over the last sort of 50 years and then over the last sort of five, 10 years, What's been the health of, of democracy? Is democracy spreading? Is it, is it shrinking? Is it in retreat? We're seeing different types of trends uh, according to what aspects of democracy we look at. So I think the reason why people are suddenly very concerned about democracy currently is that we're seeing in, in countries where we thought you know democracy is done, so Western Europe in, in the US, we're seeing democracy come under threat. If you look globally in countries which which previously haven't had elected leaders, we're seeing more elected leaders. While that has now been accepted as an important part of democracy globally, what we're seeing is this issue of rights being being trodden on. The reasoning being that because these leaders have come to power through elections, therefore what they do is democratic. So, so you can have the elections, but unless you have the institutions and the norms of a democracy, it's hard to sustain that. But, but, but there, there is a scrap of optimism there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. cling to it. <laughs> Eliane, is, is there something about the way that we've done politics, especially in this country over the past 10 or 20 years, that you think has led us to this point? For me, one of the essential characteristics of democracy is agonism, is the existence of clearly defined ideological options to choose between. And we've seen, returning to Fukuyama, his famous 1989 essay, The End of History, which heralded the end of the ideological opposition between East and West, left and right. And I think that that essay was very prescient. I think that we did seem to supposedly enter a sort of post-ideological period where politicians didn't set out clearly defined positions for the people to choose from. Instead, they put the onus onto listening to voters. Obviously, the, the rise of technocracy is part of that post, sort of supposedly post-ideological landscape. Of course, ideological distinctions and oppositions didn't go away. And actually, what we've had, I think, in the last few decades is the dominance of neoliberalism, but it's a disavowed neoliberalism. It's the right presented as common sense. There is no alternative. It's, it's the only possible position is, is to be right-wing because it makes economic sense. So, and so, I think... So, Elian, just to, to, to interrupt you, I just want to clarify what you're saying. Are you saying that the problem, in a sense, was that there was no ideological alternative to neoliberalism? But are you saying also that, in a sense, even if even if we had a political system, that, uh, an economic system that you thought was more benign, you still think that politics has to be about ideology? Because if politics isn't about ideology, it undermines that, in a sense, there's no point of democracy. So even in the kind of perfect society, would you want to be seeing an ideological battle taking place? I would, yes. So you're thinking about polarisation. To me, there are good polarisations and bad ones. And I think um, a good one is democratic opposition. You know, I want tribal divisions. I want polarisation in that sense. That's a productive opposition. Um, but so you must be very happy with the world at the moment. Then. <laughs> no, because what we have now is polarisation on the grounds not of democratic alternatives or ideological alternatives. We have polarisation on the grounds of identity. So the divisions now are not between left and right. They're between somewheres and anywheres, people who believe in gay mm. marriage, people who don't. It used to be that Labour had a three-to-one lead on the basis of class. There's now no distinction on the basis of class. It's entirely on the basis of age. They have a three-to-one lead amongst young people. So yes. we've gone from class to age uh, as being the education. determined. 
And education also very important. Yeah, so you have, and those those divisions are really dangerous because they're they're unbridgeable divisions. If you can have a healthy debate about politics, that's fine because that's what unites a democratic society is mm. having those productive debates. But I think the left has been buried. I think the left has become toxic, but the right has, has become sort of embarrassed and coy as well so it used to be that the right would declare itself openly we believe in a measure of um, inequality creates dynamism in a in a society mm. now the right um say they're on the side of the working people they they've embraced lots of liberal values around um gay marriage and so on so so actually it's the right also that's um that's sort of burying or, or being coy about its ideology and i think that lack of ideological explicitness has led to populism because populism appears to be it's a sort of a, a stand-in for ideological expression you know if trump makes outrageous statements it's a sort of proxy for ideological explicitness so Elia, what what, what uh, uh, one of the great things about getting old is I've actually lived through the cycles now. So I can, it's a great, I get this kind of wisdom of having been there when things were different. I remember the mid-80s, early 80s in the UK, we had the most left-wing major party in Europe and the most right-wing major party simultaneously. So we had a 1983 election, we had Margaret Thatcher in her kind of full pomp, and we had Michael Foote with the Labour Party manifesto. What went wrong then? Because this sounds like heaven for you. I mean, you know, we had an absolutely unashamed kind of right-wing combination of neoliberal economics and and a kind of patriotic kind of social conservatism. And, and as I said, we'd fully-fledged socialism in one country. It, it, we, we, why did that not sustain, if that's the healthy way of things being? Well, I do hark back to that time. At least, you know, we had ideological explicitness. The trouble was that the right was dominant for me. But that, you, then, then, you know, <laughs> no, you blame a, the tabloid press. Position. Yeah, yeah. But you are saying, like, that is your kind of ideal, ideal. But, like, that yeah. state of politics is preferable yeah. to the one we, we had subsequently. Yes, because what we have now is the, the advent of populism, which is essentially anti-ideological. It's an us-and-them politics, and that relates to the anti-immigration sentiment. But actually what we have now is, is a populism that's against the political system per se. So that system that we had. I mean, in a way, it's, it's, a, it's a paradoxical phenomenon, populism, because it's also it's the desire for the levers of uh, representative democracy to be once again functional. But at the same time, it's an anti-political force because it's against the, the political system that we have. And, and that's my problem with populism is that it's an anti-system so, so, can I, what, what's your kind of view of the relationship between ideology and healthy democracy? A kind of Goldilocks view, which is you need a certain amount of, of disagreement, but not too much. You know, if 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 you've well, got a consensus, it's, can, can I ask a slightly, yeah. very similar, slightly different question? Which is, what, what's the role of of um, emotion or kind of shared uh, sentiment um, and identity? Because we can talk about democracy as a set of institutions and norms and rights and so on, but it, it seems to be it only really works if people feel like they're on the same team. I mean, part of what we're seeing now is is that loss of a democratic culture. So it sort of gets to this feeling of uh, we belong to this system, we have a say in that system, and and, and to I this mean, country, yeah, to this country, and and we see the political system as part of this country, and that's we belong right. to both of those things, and right. those two things aren't separated out. I'd be wary of, of kind of saying, I think, harking back to kind of a, a more clear distinction between uh, where political parties stand is what's going to get citizens reconnected into politics. So we have to then, uh, you're, 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 you're both academics, so this is, or in part at least academics, so this is the question you hate. What are you, what are you going to do about it? I know it's not your job. 
to <laughs> your job is to tell us what's gone wrong. But uh, Nia, starting with you, if you were kind of world emperor or you could get all the party leaders into a room or whatever, what would you? What would be the things you'd want concretely to do? And I'm a great advocate of the greater use of deliberative democracy, for example. So I've got my own little idea, my own little widget that I would use to try to create things. What would you? Where would you start? So one of the things I think one of the things that's really important right now is starting with a conceptualization of democracy that includes more than just elections. And I think we're, you know, there's a sense in which uh, the rhetoric, at least, is is losing sight of that for me. And and I think the deliberation point is interesting because for me, the point of democracy is that there isn't going to be that. So like there isn't going to be that obvious answer to how how we get things back. Yeah. I would seek to to question what it is about representative democracy that we value. What's legitimate about the authority of politicians? So we don't all kind of end up with this endless deferring to the people. What's actually legitimate about political representation, the structures and systems and institutions of representative democracy? What's what what do we value about those institutions per se? And what and in what ways have they been corrupted by the revolving door to business and financialization? technocracy and so on, so that we can start to try and reinvent those terms, representative democracy, political authority, ideology. And actually, we may need to reinvent the words that we use to, to, to articulate those values because they have become toxic. It's interesting because yeah, the, the question about representative democracy is, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating and, and fundamental. And actually, you see it's, it, it I, I agree, it's, it's really being demonised in some sense, or at least it's under threat. You see it in, in, in America as well, uh, the absolute kind of like fierce party loyalty and polarisation has has come about from the fact that, you know, nobody really believes or wants their, their representatives to kind of think for themselves anymore. They just want them to line up on, on one side or the other and do, do the bidding of, of, the, uh, of, of the president or... Or the party, um, so I think it's yeah, I, yeah. I, I think what's really interesting to me, and we unfortunately we have to we have to finish because with, with this conversation going, because I think what's fascinating is in in some senses it seems to me, Anir and Ali and Ali, and you you disagree quite profoundly actually that that Anir, you're kind of speaking of the need for kind of consensus and recognition of the importance of the kind of system as a whole, uh, and Ali, and you're asking. You're kind of saying, actually, in many ways, we need a more uh, explicit ideological kind of conversation and we need to understand the the deep problems with the system as it was. But actually, the thing you have in common, which I think is interesting, is you want people to attend to the nature of the system, to think more deeply about what's going on when people represent us. You know, what do we mean by democracy? What do rights actually... Mean so, I think that, that that's a very interesting kind of. And I don't think question. we've given it nearly a mu- as, yeah. as much thought as as, as it deserves. And, and just just generally as as a country, and you see this in the US as well, we haven't really thought hard about these questions. We sort of assume this is the way the world is, and now we're yeah. realizing no, the world doesn't have to be this way. Yeah. So what are we losing? So thank you both. It's been a really great conversation, and uh, your it, it, it is only polite to remind our listeners of the uh, books that you've written. So Eliane, your book is Anti Politics on the Demon. Of ideology, authority, and the state, available on all good neoliberal websites <laughs> now. And Nahir, your book is, is Democracy Failing. Thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That was absolutely fascinating. But before we go, actually, I shouldn't say but, because it sounds like the next bit's not going to be fascinating. But before we go, we end each episode with a provocation, something that shifted the way 
we look at the world just a little bit. And I think, Ian, moving from the kind of sublime to the ridiculous, you want to talk about refrigerators. Yeah. Uh, well, it, I, I wrote a piece for, for the New Statesman about fake news, um, although it's actually about uh, the kind of the, the, the way we do democracy in, in general. But it, it started because I came across this this theory of the reason that, that, that people consume fake news, um, which is slightly different than the dominant theory. So a dominant explanation is that people love fake news because when it confirms their, their bias, when they so they see something that agrees with them, they'll go, yeah, click, share. Um, there's, a, there's an alternative explanation, which is that the reason fake news thrives is that people can't be bothered to think very hard. So, so if they see something interesting or, or kind of provocative, um, they will cl- click or share it. So the, the, one of the papers that these guys wrote about it is called Why We're, We're Lazy, Not Biased. And they, they have this kind of grand theory of history, which I thought was really interesting, which is the term is cognitive control, right? So if you have more cognitive control, they find in their experiments, you're less likely to believe in fake news. You're also la- less likely to believe in kind of fake profundities by Deepak Chopra. I mean, literally, they tested they tested these kind of like uh, meaningless but why, so pseudo-wise sayings. And the same people who fell for those are the same people who who, who uh, uh, sort of enjoyed clicking on, on fake news. Um, are they just stupid? So, uh, no, they're, they're, they are, well, they're stupid in the sense that we are all stupid from time to time, which is we, we do things without thinking. Right. And the internet, the problem with the internet is that it encourages us to to live by our impulses and our feelings. It's something we talked about with right. Will, Will Davis the other week. And so, so cognitive control is basically analytical reason, reasoning and thinking hard about what you're doing, but it's effortful and it's, and it's hard work. So that's all interesting. But then the, the kind of really the kicker to this is that is that they have this kind of grand theory of hi- history, which is that society goes through these big cycles of cognitive control followed by complete lack of cognitive control because the cognitive control allows us to build technologies, which then allows us to abandon our, our critical faculties, right? So... In a really kind of tough society where you have to plan your your food consumption because you don't have very very much food around, then you have to have a lot of cognitive control, right? Because you have to kind of plan your your food consumption, plan how you're how you're going how you're going to eat. In a society of abundance, say it's, it's, you know where you've invented the fridge through the through the application of cognitive control, it's a very kind of complex technology. So we have solved that problem for you. Here's here's the fridge, right? So I'm looking at the kind of span of the last sort of hundred two hundred years. Then that leads to a lack of cognitive control. Because people say, "Oh well, I can eat whenever I want. I can yeah." So so then you kind of over consume food. And so their kind of theory is, is that we, we go through these periods of cognitive control where we kind of really have to think about hard about things and we invent things like computers and the internet. And then when, once we've got computers and the internet, it enables us to give up on thinking altogether because we just go like <laughs> clicking on cats and fake, fake news. And so, it, you know, whether or not it's, it's, it's true, it's a really kind of intriguing theory and it kind of made me wonder like where we are at the moment where, you know, we, we live in relatively affluent societies. There's lots of stuff that we don't have to think about that's been taken off our plates. We're, we seem to be re- responding more and more impulsively to, um, and politicians seem to be more and more happy to be led by their feelings as, as do voters. Um, so that kind of makes you wonder what's next in the cycle. So from the crisis of democracy to the invention of the refrigerator, uh, the normal span you expect from an episode of Polarised. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks' time. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. It really does help other people discover this programme. 
Polarized was presented by Ian Leslie and by me, Matthew Taylor. The producer was James Shield. And we were brought to you by the RSA with generous support from Thames and Hudson's Big Ideas series, which you can find now in bookshops. See you next time. <laughs>